Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, the first episode in a new series. Woo! <laughs> I'm excited. 1997. It was like the first day of school. This is an ex- and this is a, this is an exciting year to get through, right? I mean, it's a very exciting look year. Look at the films Can we're going to be. Smell tackling. those those freshly sharpened pencils, TJ. That new packet of loose leaf. The promise of what your teacher's going to be like and who you're going to sit next to. That was the year I lost my first tooth. <laughs> Probably me too. Honestly, I don't really yeah. know. I remember it was quite traumatizing. I I refused to pull. You know how you have to kind of pull a little bit; it doesn't fall out of it. So I, I absolutely refused. You got a wiggle. Yeah, yeah, and it was like turning colors. And my dad was basically like, you pussy. And I think he had to trick me about something and then pulled it. And I was so betrayed. So that's what I think of when I think of 1997. That's a classic Midwestern dad move. <laughs> but I'm glad, you, I'm glad you took us there because I wanted to set the stage for 1997. Uh, 1997, Bill Clinton, just won re-election. He's about to start a second term. Yep. And uh, this is probably the last year that Bill Clinton is in anyone's good graces <laughs> because in January I'm, of 98, some, <laughs> some stories are going to drop. <laughs> and, uh, 1997, I believe the Marlins won the World Series yes. in uh, Game 7, Extra Innings. Uh, I'm going off the top of the head, by the way. I'm not looking at anything. With a this. base hit by Edgar Renteria. Future Cardinal Edgar Renteria had the game-winning single that I believe the winning run was scored by current Milwaukee Brewers manager Craig Council. I think I that's correct. That's run. correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Um, I did have to look this up. I think the Super Bowl was Brett Favre and the Packers. Um well, it depends on if you go by 97 Super Bowl, 96 season, or 98 Super Bowl, 97 season, in which case the latter, I believe, was John Elway. In the I was going to say I'd, I'd go 97 yeah. season because most of the season took place in in the year. In fact, in fact, they're playing out that season when some quite a few of the movies we're about to talk about in the series are were being released. So, I want to ask this specifically of Ken Dussel because I think it'd be funny. Who do you think won People Magazine's Sexist Man Alive in 1987? <laughs> in 19- I give you a hint. I can give you a hint. Oh, it is a let me big guess TV before. star. Oh, okay. It's a big TV star about to become a big movie star. I'm going to guess. And it's also not, not the first, not the only time he wins Sexiest Man Alive. He will win later. I'm, I'm going to guess Clooney is the pick. You're correct. George Clooney. Yeah. yeah. So he's on. He's TJ, writing. Were you going to say that? I didn't I get was. a chance to guess. Yeah, no, he's, that's writing okay. high, he's writing high at this point on ER and he's about He's to... in the middle of his ER run. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's, he's still a couple years away from jumping ship on ER, but he's like. One of the most famous people alive because he's, uh, what's his name on ER? Dr. Ross? Dr. Ross. Dr. Right. Doug Ross. Yeah. And then I think the the Peacemaker comes out this year, right? That he's in? The Peacemaker? I think so, yeah. Mm. And then he's a, he's a year out from uh, Out of Sight with J-Lo mm. and Soderbergh. And then uh, he's a big movie star. Yeah. ER was weirdly one of the first shows that I like, outside of like Nickelodeon, one of the first shows I like sat down and watched every Thursday. It was like appointment viewing. That was like the first show that I actually did that for in like middle school. Isn't that... Kind of random, but I, I well, my parents watched it every week, and that's why I, I did watch it every week, and I'm pretty sure it's because my parents had it on. I also, 1997. The last thing I'll say is uh, the Cardinals acquired Mark McGuire in a trade with the Oakland Athletics, was which was probably the biggest thing that happened to me in 1997. That was a huge moment in my personal life. Probably you too as well. Well, that's <laughs> I don't. I'll say I don't remember them acquiring him so much as just the '98 season next year. Right. This is the last. We're talking 97. We're about to turn the corner. And 1998, which isn't a, isn't a great year for the Cardinals. Like We were third place Bacchus in 98. But like, what, a, what a season, though. But yeah, hey, the, I, I'm not here to talk about the past. <laughs> <laughs> I, I only remember us acquiring him because I, distinctly, I have a distinct memory of driving home from Six Flags. There's a blast from the past for St. Louis kids. Driving home from Six Flags. And my parents told me the Cardinals got Mark McGuire. And I had no idea who that was. And they had to explain to me who that was. And they, that's when I probably learned about the home run record because I didn't know 
you know, I was seven years old. I didn't know that existed yet. But then I would know very, very shortly after that. And I would know everything about it. And I would be like, that was like one of my first obsessions in life was the, the home run chase of 1998. Well, sure. In 1998, Midwestern kids, particularly in St. Louis and Chicago areas. Yeah, the home run record. Everyone knew about the home run record. Everyone knew the history. Everyone knew about uh, about Maris and Mantle and the breakdown. Uh, it, it's all we knew. That's, That's all right. we knew. It's all we talked about. Big deal. Another thing that was a big deal to me in 1997 is I have a distinct memory of my parents going to see As Good As It Gets in theaters. And it's it's one of those things that like when you're a kid and like your parents go do something without you, <laughs> you suddenly get really fixated on whatever they're doing and you get so curious about it. So anytime they went to go see a movie that wasn't for kids, I would get like really curious about whatever they were seeing. And I actually have talked to my parents recently because I apparently had a false memory where they went to go see uh, What Lies Beneath. And because uh, I, I, I could have swore they did that. And then I asked my mom about it, like, I don't know, within last year. She's like, I definitely never went to go see What Lies Beneath. So I don't know what you're talking about. But I'm pretty sure they did go see As Good As It Gets in theaters, as apparently everyone did, because this movie just printed money. Yeah, it did. a lot of people went to see this movie. I'm fairly certain my parents did. I don't know. I haven't talked to them about it, but I'm fairly sure they went and see, saw this one. I remember seeing this movie, I'll be honest, fairly young. It came out December, right, of 97? December. Um, came out the same week? No, it came out the weekend after Titanic. Yeah. So, which is which is great is marketing bold. strategy, by the way. I know. Yeah, bold. That is bold. And it's, <laughs> everyone thought it was going to fail, though. Everyone thought it was going to fail. It Sorry, still made money. People, this is people go into the movies because people went to see Titanic more than once, and yet this movie is still making money. If you liked Jack and Rose, come for Jack and Helen. <laughs> <laughs> Who's to be fair? They're pulling. We're talking about the night mid nineties. Speaking of it, Hel- Helen Hunt right now is riding high at that point, thanks to Mad About You. Speaking of TV stars, yeah, uh, this is this is on the this is on the t- this is on the second half of Mad About You, yep. but uh, Mad About You ran from ninety two to ninety nine. This is ninety seven. I didn't know that Helen Hunt won four Emmys, yes, four and cons- three Golden Globes. She won four on Mad About You consecutive Emmys, and she, I believe, at this point, she j- had just won her second when this comes out. So she's right in the middle of a four year consecutive Emmy streak. In she's she's in the middle of a four year Emmy streak, and she wins Best Actress at the Oscars. Like, has anyone had a better year? Right, yeah. Than Helen Hunt in nineteen eighty seven. Helen in Hunt the last twenty five years. Helen Hunt has had a great second half of the nineties. Yeah. yeah, this movie made three hundred fourteen million dollars worldwide, which is a curiosity to me. Um, <laughs> that, that that's a little surprising watching this now. Um, and so I, I want to talk. To, you said you saw this young Ken. I want to talk about our first experience with this movie. My first experience, I think I was like 19 when I saw it, and because I remembered my parents going to see it, so therefore it was already a big deal to me, and I knew that it won Best Actor and Best Actress, which is a big piece of trivia, and as we've discussed in the Cuckoo's Nest episode, that's not something that happens very often, and I knew that it made a bunch of money, and I knew it was nominated for Best Picture, so like by the time I saw it when I was 19, it was like, it had a, it was casting a big shadow, and had a lot of expectation going into it, and I really did not know what to do with it when I first saw it, when I was 19. And I really, I wanted it to make sense to me, its success, and its success did not make sense to me initially. And we can talk about how that evolved, but TJ, what did you first see As Good As It Gets? I don't really remember. I remember there being lots of ads for it on pay-per-view. Um, with, like, with the dog. The yes. dog was in every ad. Um, well, Understandably. Um, yes. Verd- Verdell is a good Verdell. boy. May he rest in peace. And... Uh, I, so I don't actually remember, but I do know that I owned this on DVD at a, like, this isn't a brag, this is a shame, a, like, precociously young age, like, maybe 12 or 13. 
um, I liked this when a DVDs lot. DVDs were like during the DVD boom. Then you oh had, yeah, yeah, had to rush out and get as good as it gets. Yes, it was flying off the shelves. Like <laughs> me and that that sixty year old crowd, we had to like you know four o'clock right before dinner in bed. Uh, and and I, I liked this movie a lot in my adolescence because I love I still love Jack Nicholson. I think he might be my mm-hmm. favorite actor, but I was a huge huge Jack Nicholson fan. And I found in this movie. We'll get to this later. He's incredibly charming, but I found a lot of the like shockingly bigoted things that he says, like, of course I frowned upon them. I wasn't like, yeah, but I found them really, really funny. And I would like watch the movie and look forward to like him saying that shocking vulgar thing. Acerbic wit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't still have that reaction, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> um, I definitely want to talk about that and that aspect of it. But Ken, when did you first see As Good As It Gets, if you can remember? Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly when. I had to have been, I mean, I, it had to have been probably within, the, within a couple of years of this movie coming out. And I first saw it on television. I know it was it was on cable. It was, was it in a four-hour time slot? Um, yeah, probably say, in a commercial cow. breaks. Three-hour yeah. time slot, yeah. Because my parents, they, they, they definitely, this is one of those movies they showed to me probably earlier than I, I should have. Um, but I loved it. Because like TJ, I did love Jack Nicholson. I also would watch Mad, uh, Mad About You with them occasionally when they had it on. And so I did like Helen Hunt. So it had two people in it that I, I quite liked. And um, and there's something else. Granted, I don't remember staying up to ever watch him. But do you guys remember there's a few years in the mid-90s where Greg Kinnear had a late, late show on NBC following Conan O'Brien. Eventually, Carson Daly filled that slot. I never watched it. I have no I, memory of this being I, a thing. That's how, I thought I, I knew he hosted the soup. Yes, I later he had a late night show, and I thought he was like being groomed to take over for Craig Ferguson, but that didn't end up happening. But he actually had a late night show on NBC. He had a late night show. It was a. Okay. It, it was a. It was a. It's the show that eventually Car- the time slot Carson Daly eventually filled for years Last and years. Last call with Carson right. Daly. Yeah. Um. But I, I I don't know what it was called. Probably late or later with Greg Kinnear or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And. I never watched it because it was on way too late, but that's how I knew of Greg Kinnear. He was one of the late night guys. I knew of him. And so the combination of you got Nicholson, you got Helen Hunt, and there's this comedian or this funny guy on. Yeah, I kind of wanted to watch it. Plus, it's a romantic comedy, or at least that's what it was being billed as. Is it, though? That's the thing <laughs> that's we're going to get question. to. That's what it's, <laughs> it was being billed as. But I, I did like this movie so much that it, I probably had a DVD of this when I was like 12 or 13 in my personal collection. I think I saw you at the Walgreens buying it. Yes, that's right. Yeah, probably <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, this one, this one's lived me for quite a while. And, um, yeah, I probably watch it every, every couple of years. Um, okay. throw it on. Even, it's one of those movies I can throw on in the background and not be fully paying attention. It's, it's, it's a real, it's got real background movie kind of vibes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't have to be watching it, but I, I, I know the lines that are coming up and Nicholson's got some great deliveries in this movie. They're, he does. They are, they are, some of them are terrible and you don't want to leave we'll, your we'll, home. We'll talk about it. Yeah. You don't want to leave your home repeating them, but. You mentioned Mad About You, and I just want to share this anecdote just to bring it back to something we mentioned earlier. I've seen exactly one episode of Mad About You in my life. And I believe it aired in either 1998 or 1999. And the reason I watched it, because there was a guest star on the episode, one Mark McGuire. And it was an episode of Mad About You where Mark wow. McGuire w- was on dis- – he was, like, doing his victory lap after setting the home run record. And it was a really weird episode of television. That could be the most 1990s thing anybody's ever seen. <laughs> a lot of crossover like in the 90s. Mark McGuire yeah. on Mad About You. That if, if I mean, I was on <laughs> – 
I was on the Mad About You Wikipedia page in preparation for this episode, and like they crossed over kind of with Seinfeld mm. and kind of with other NBC. The NBC just did crossovers all the time. If they just like cut an ad with NSYNC in it, that would have been, you know, the most yeah, 90s thing. Um, so again, I saw this, I think, when I was 19, and it had I had a lot of expectation riding on it because my parents seen it when I was a kid, and it made a lot of money, and it nominated for Oscars, and it won Oscars, and blah, 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 blah. And um, I think I watched it, and I was like, really? This? This is what people really liked in 1997? That's, that's interesting. Just because it is like, it's a very shaggy movie. It's an extremely shaggy movie. It's two hours and 20 minutes. It's kind of a romantic comedy, yep. but like, that's kind of a really hard sell for me, even to this day. Um, and so, but like, I wanted this movie to make sense to me, and I wanted its success to make sense to me. So I, like, I watched it a couple times, and I have a distinct memory of being a freshman in college, and it was a Friday afternoon. And it was that kind of like dead time between classes being over for the week, but like people haven't quite started drinking yet. So like just a few hours in the afternoon, that little dead space. And my friends were probably two rooms down in the dorm, like hanging out, maybe having the first drinks of the weekend. But I was in my room, not even on the couch. I was on the floor, kneeling in front of the TV, watching as good as it gets for the second time, just like studying it trying to make it make sense to me <laughs> and and this is why josh got so much action in college <laughs> you know what i did fine in college thank you very much not, that's not that's not the here nor there yeah thank you um but uh over the years uh i've definitely warmed this movie a lot more and now i think i really really like it in an uncomplicated way uh especially now that i've kind of like you know 25 years on i've kind of divorced it from the expectations of a big oscar movie and a big box office success and i just kind of like let it be what it is and I like it on its own terms, you know? Um, it is a very odd movie, though. Uh, tonally, like TJ kind of alluded, a lot of stuff hasn't aged well. Uh, I mean, as TJ says all the time, I'm a big screenplay structure kind of guy, and this is a really weird structure. Uh, I counted seven acts. This is a seven-act movie instead of the traditional three-act movie, and I can go through those seven acts if you like. We can get into it. It doesn't really... It, it's built, as we said, it's built as a romantic comedy. It doesn't feel like it because it doesn't really easily fit into any of the classic romantic comedy structure either. Well, it's it's also like kind of two and a half movies kind of smushed together into one movie, you know? Like, hey, let's go to Baltimore. What? <laughs> okay. It's, sure, we're an hour and a half in. We're going to Baltimore. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's, it's an odd, odd duck. TJ, I don't think you seem to like this as much as me and Ken do, though. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say. We haven't really gotten okay. into the details of it, but I'm gathering that because <laughs> I'm not sharing a lot of your enthusiasm. Uh, I do think it's intended to be a romantic comedy, and I think that's a big issue for me with that I, that I have with the film is the way in which it adopts some of the staples of romantic comedy and I think doesn't do them very well. I think that might be my least favorite part of the movie, too. Um, but I guess to your point, let me set this up because I haven't done that yet. Uh, so Jack Nicholson plays Melvin Udall. And I believe the tagline for the movie was get ready for Melvin yes. or something like that. It was some allusion to Melvin. Yes. As if we're supposed to know who that is. Another one was a comedy from the heart that goes for the throat. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> It's <laughs> it means that it's sweet, but it's also mean. I yeah, guess. Melvin. Melvin is a lot. He is a lot. Yeah, just so Jack Nicholson is Melvin Udall. He's a, I guess, like a, a a novelist, a romance writer, possibly, and he has OCD, which we will talk about 
he's a very successful novelist because if very successful novelist i had to, i had to make note of it while we were watching when i was watching the 62 books this. yeah he finishes his 62nd book during mm-hmm. the film so he's so like james he's a patterson of very romance. successful uh and yeah it, it appears that they're all romantic in nature yeah because because he's successful with uh women and popular with women and the publisher is woman there it and is that his fans are mostly women yes correct. um and he is a miserable son of a bitch and doesn't like people and is extremely rude uh homophobic racist anti-semitic sexist the whole nine yards miserly neighbor yeah he has a neighbor named Simon, played by Greg Kinnear, who is a gay painter who lives across the hall and has a little dog named Verdell. And they are – Melvin is predictably antagonistic towards Simon and predictably predictably antagonistic towards Verdell, the dog. And um, he Melvin goes to his favorite breakfast spot every day because he is obsessive compulsive and has his routine. And he has to be served by Carol, the waitress, played by Helen Hunt, who has a sickly little son. And that they don't really know what's wrong with him. He just gets fevers and coughs and vomits a lot and just kind of a generic sickly kid. And uh, their three worlds kind of collide when Simon is attacked uh, in his home by a group of... Skeet what? Ulrich. <laughs> Skeet Ulrich. <laughs> a group of Skeet, Skeet Ulrich and yeah. Kennedy. Yeah, it's like the cast of Scream. Right? <laughs> the Scream <laughs> reunion. Yeah, Skeet Ulrich and Jamie Kennedy plus a third guy. Uh, who was the killer uh, the whole time. By- uh, I don't know if they are. I don't know if they're prostitutes or vagrants. Like I don't know what to call these three gentlemen. But he, Simon is attacked in his home uh, pretty badly, and Melvin is tasked with taking care of the dog Verdell, much to his chagrin at first. But he warms to Verdell, and when he learns to love the dog, he also learns to love other things and other people for the first time. And so he he takes an interest in Carol's personal life uh, for the first time, and uh that's kind of like the setup of the movie and then it's just like the collision of simon melvin and carol and their lives and how they become intertwined intertangled and fall in love question mark uh simon and carol say i love you to each other multiple times eventually melvin and carol kind of end up together at the end of the movie question mark um yeah but that's the setup um where to begin here <laughs> where to begin <laughs> yeah, let's unpack <laughs> let me go to my outline uh <laughs> Let's let's begin with uh, Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson uh, won his third Oscar with this movie, and his second in a James L. Brooks movie. Is this his definitive '90s performance? Where does this rank among Jack Nicholson performances? Do you even like this? TJ, how about you? How about you start? Talk about Jack Nicholson and as good as it gets. I used to really like this. I think that the success, to, to whatever degree of success the movie has, rests a lot upon Nicholson's shoulders because Melvin is so... uh, I I used to find it kind of amusing and charming, as I said, and now I'm like, this this is overly written to the point that every opportunity, especially in the first act, like every opportunity that they could have him say something offensive, it's like, he offends the gay guy, check. He offends the woman, check. He offends the Jewish people, check. He offends the black guy, check. He offends the Hispanic maid, check. Um, and the fact that this movie is like watchable at all rests upon, I think, the natural charm and the bits of comedy that Nicholson's able to get out of that. Um, I agree. Yeah. I read, I read a review that was like, he, Nicholson's miscast. They need someone that was more uncomfortable and stiff, like William Hurt. And I was <laughs> like, oh, dear God. Um, 
do I? Is it one of my favorite Nicholson performances? Not so much. Uh, for me, it's it was an early one for me. So it was like this and the Joker were like how I knew Jack Ni- and Mars Attacks. Or yes. How I knew Jack Nicholson. You get two got two roles in that one. Yeah, yeah. But now that I've seen more of his oeuvre, it is not one of my favorite of his performances. The way, like as I said, I think he bears a lot of the weight of the movie upon his natural charm and charisma. Not only does his charisma kind of take you through a lot of the more acerbic things he says and offensive things he says, but also there's like, I'm thinking about like in that first act when he's writing and trying to like write his book and he's trying to like think, uh, love was, what was love? And like, he's, it's a close up on his face. He's like thinking, thinking, thinking. And then suddenly he has like an epiphany face where he realizes what he wants to write who else could sell that epiphany face? The love was blank face. I think he that's just like, I don't know, man. He's got the juice. Ken, what do you think of Jack Nicholson here? I, I particularly, I, I love this performance. It is one of my favorite Nicholson performances. And I want to push back a little on what TJ is pointing out. I think I think I agree that when you're watching this, it feels like you're checking off, oh, he's this. he offends this group. And he then offends this demographic. And he offends this group. Um, I... It's hard for me to say, though, that his racist or prejudiced statements are necessarily coming from a prejudiced uh, person, because I think no, there's something he just hates deep- everybody. Correct. There's something much deeper about Melvin, and this is where we'll talk about the OCD of it all. Um, this movie kind of buries the fact that Melvin is suffering from several disorders at once, one of which is clearly he just prefers to be a recluse. He doesn't like being around people. And so he pushes them away however he can. He goes right for the throat. He reaches for the quickest thing that will cut them down. And in most of these cases, it happens to be racist slash homophobic. Correct. He doesn't want them coming back to the door. He doesn't Mm -hmm. want them interacting with him. And the easiest way to do that is being offensive and horrible. And he's fine with that, uh, at least when we meet him. So, TJ, you you don't seem to think this is like in the pantheon of Jack Nicholson, but like... This is one of his like last great roles, I think. You know, he's got he's got about Schmidt still left in the tank. Mm-hmm. He's got something's got to give with Nancy Meyer still left. He's got The Departed still left, and like I don't know, you want to talk about like the bucket list? No, <laughs> or, no, no, I don't want to talk about the or, bucket uh, list. What's the what's the his, his last film role? How is do James you know? Brooks's last movie? Yeah. What's called? How, How do, do you know? know? How do you know? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's it, unfortunate. It is that's a that's James a, L. Brooks movie, and um, not to, not to get too far down the baseball. Uh, line here, but that one also involves baseball, if I recall correctly. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Owen Wilson is a relief pitcher for the Washington Nationals. Yes. Oh wow. And Reese yeah. Witherspoon is yes. a softball yes. player, I believe. I think oh, so. Oh wow, I'm a setup man. Wow. Yeah. I'm a lefty specialist. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's this pitch like, clock is really wow. <laughs> I'm like speeding up here. The fact that that's the most recent Nicholson film is is it, I kind of feel the same way about that as I do about the fact Welcome to Mooseport that yes Gene Hackman's last film is Welcome to Mooseport or Sean that Connery's movie last exist. movie his last movie was The Royal Tenenbaums let's just all agree or, or Sean Connery's last film is was The League of Extraordinary, Extraordinary Gentlemen. Gentlemen yes yeah oh, yes yeah. it would have been oh. much better The League of Extraordinary Women. <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah I mean I guess when I watched Nicholson here. This was maybe my first like exposure to Nicholson because this came out when we were seven, eight years old. So, like I didn't really, you know, I hadn't seen the Batman, or maybe maybe I had seen Batman. I'm not really sure, but um, like this is the Jack Nicholson that I grew up with, so to speak, and I had to like discover '70s Jack Nicholson later on. Um, but it's like 
it's kind of weird watching this and like it, I don't see this as the same person as Jake Giddis no. and R.P. McMurphy. And it's pretty remarkable that that's I don't know. I guess I'm impressed by the, just the passage of time, but like I don't know. It's just a, I don't know. It's a remarkable performance to me. Um, maybe a weird Best Actor win though. This is not the kind of movie that I would think would win any Oscars, let alone Best Actor and Best Actress. I think there's something to be said though for I think it's it, TJ is kind of op- is talking to this. The fact that he's so important to this film being as successful as it is, and the fact that it's Jack kind of firing on all cylinders. So it's a celebration really of Jack. And he does yeah. he does deliver here. It's a really, really great performance. Very, very different from what we're used to from him, um, as far as just certain behaviors and aspects he has to fill in for Melvin throughout the film. And he nails it. It it feels like he it's it feels very lived in. Like you almost picture Nicholson having spent a lot of time in the in what clearly appears to be a set, but living in that little apartment and kind of just this is the set. <laughs> I said this over text. This is the sound stagiest movie I've ever seen. Like it's I was so ready for like sound a you know. Um, <laughs> Wait, what's that? That's supposed to be the Seinfeld theme. Um, I I wish he hadn't won for this because he should have won for About Schmidt, and I think a reason he didn't win for About Schmidt like five years later is that he had just won for As Good as It Gets. Well, uh, it's funny you say that because About Schmidt is one of the most stacked best actor categories of all time. I'm going off the top of my head here. I believe that was Jack Nicholson for About Schmidt, Dan Day-Lewis for Games of New York, uh, Nicholas Cage for Adaptation, uh, Michael Caine for something, The Quiet American maybe. The Quiet American. The winner, American. Which is, mm-hmm. and what? The winner, which was Adrian Brody for The Pianist. Right. Uh, Adrian Brody is the first man to win an Oscar uh, in a category against four previous winners, which is my bit of trivia from 2002. Yeah, race. and that obviously held up really, really well over the years. Thank you. <laughs> uh, should have been Nicolas Cage, if you ask me. Um, but on the other side of that coin, 1997 is a pretty thin year for yep. Best Actor. Yep. And I think that's how he ended up winning here. Uh, do you guys know the other nominees for Best Actor in 1997? It's an old boys club except for Damon. Damon's here for yeah. Goodwill Hunting, but you got uh, Peter Fonda. And, Ooh, Gold. And you've got... Um, Robert uh, Duvall for The Robert Apostle, du- yep, directing Robert himself. Duvall. And, and then Dustin, Dustin Hoffman, yeah, Dusty. Right. Nothing's like. I mean, I guess you could have given it to Damon, but like, I don't know. I would, I guess, just as soon give to Nicholson for as good as it gets than I would for Damon. I don't know. I haven't seen I the I like Apostle. The Damon I need more. to see the Apostle. Okay. Do you need to see the Apostle though? Twenty five years old. Is that like? <laughs> yeah. Why not? See it. Why not? No, because life is short, dude. There's a lot of movies to see. The seventies. I've seen a lot of crap movies, so why not? Just why generally not a stacked. I mean, chance, I remember watching you know. this. On Maybe the see the judge the ceremony of the television. Robert Duvall's last All of the stars who are there, Starring and when Nicholson wins, he owns title, that room. Whatever. I mean, this um, is the year of Titanic. Well, but yeah, yeah, he's Nicholson he's is Nicholson. Royalty, so. Yes. Yeah. I asked about is this his best nine his performance? It's this or is a few good men, right? I think so. The, a Few Good Men is yeah. probably the one that stands out most to people, just as far as pop culture references. Um, Don't forget but, Wolf, though. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, everyone else has. <laughs> um, or how about The Two Jakes? We're forgetting about The Two Jakes. I haven't seen The Two Jakes yet. I need to see that. You're not missing anything. Yeah, I mean, that's mostly all I got in Nicholson. I, I mean, TJ, I wrote down the same thing that you said, which is that his charisma is what sets him apart. The movie only works because he can make the miserable, mean man super charismatic and that's you know why the movie works i agree with you there uh helen hunt helen hunt we already said that she was in the midst of uh four emmys and three golden globes from mad about you um i've only seen one episode of that show but it was because of mark mcguire uh the other note i have on helen hunt is i have a big crush on her in this movie 
And that is a recent development. When I was 19, I did not feel that way. But now that I'm in my 30s watching this, I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get the hell on to peel now. Because, so she has this face that she does where she like smiles with her mouth closed over her thin lips and like kind of raises her eyebrows and like shrugs. She does it like six or eight times this movie. That look won her the Oscar. She may have had that speech where she cries at the kitchen table and talks to her mom about like the men in her life as she's writing that note to Nicholson, but that that's not the thing that won her the Oscar. What won her the Oscar is that look, that smile and shrug. This could be right. Con science? <laughs> I'll be honest, she's never really won me over. I love this film, but um I guess let's let's we'll can, do you want to talk about it a little bit here and whether or not It's really only the most recent watch that she won me over cuz she never I never really got it in the previous four or five watches I've seen this movie. But, like, I don't know. For some reason this time, it, it worked on me. In order to talk about Hunt's performance here, I guess let's talk a little bit about the relationship between Melvin and Carol, because Carol the waitress. I'm not sure that is the part of the film that, that in any way really work, has ever worked for me, mm-hmm. um, because not, not only do they not really mesh or really work together, um, it's the least romantic aspect of the quote unquote romantic comedy that this is supposed to be. There is no, the only reason they keep coming back together is because the script needs it to happen. Yes. Well, and, and Melvin, this is something else we talk about when we talk about his various disorders. Um, Melvin doesn't seem particularly sexually inclined towards her or anybody really for that matter. Well, so she comes, there's a great scene where she gets up in the middle of the night pulls her pants on, takes a bus and a train, and then runs in the rain from Brooklyn to Manhattan and shows up on his doorstep in the middle of the night only to say, I will never have sex with you. And (laughs) that's probably the first time that thought even occurred to Melvin. Yes. That was not even on his radar. Right. And her bringing that up then is the first time that thought occurred to him. And his response to her is so incredible. What's he say back, Ken? Do you remember? Uh, he says, oh, sorry, we don't, we we don't, don't open, open for the, the no, no sex oaths till 9 a.m. 9 a.m. <laughs> what an incredible, incredible line. Well delivered, well written, I think. And then he's like, that it? Because he's, yeah, yeah, he's being facetious. You're, you're right. That's That was not a, a calculation for him until she brings it up. And then suddenly that he, she plants that seed in his head. She is so... Her character is all over the place for good reason. I mean, she's a bit manic. I mean, her kid is sick and she's juggling having to go into Manhattan for work and then out to, I, I can't remember now where she's at. She's in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Um, but it, it's not, it's certainly not a short tr- commute for her every day going into this, this cafe where you assume she's only working there because she must get great tips because they certainly aren't paying her that well in the 90s. Well, Shane Black doesn't pay very well. I was going to say Shane Black, by the way, who's the uh, cafe manager. Three big directors in this. Yes, you got Shane Black, cafe manager. Lawrence Kasdan as the Lawrence psychiatrist. Lawrence Kasdan, the therapist. Yeah. Todd Salons, yes. guy on the bus. Todd Salons on the bus. And you've got Harold Ramis as the doctor. And, and Harold Ramis, yeah, yes. as the doctor. Yeah, of yeah. course. So, yeah, there's there's a bunch of... James L. Brooks went ahead and got a bunch of uh, other filmmakers to just pop up. Shane Black's got the one great moment where he gets to throw Jack Nicholson out of the cafe, which apparently doesn't yeah. hold up long term because he shows back up later. It's like, really, really great job, Mr. Manager. So, I, I guess I'll say this. So... I think they do a really good job in the first, like, 10, 15 minutes kind of telling us who Carol is. Uh, we see her at work, and we see her talking to both customers and coworkers about the date she's going on that night, but only through the prism of her son. She talks about everything through the prism of her sick son. She's like, oh, my son said when I go on my date that he won't have some of his coughing fits. Like, everything in her life is through the through the filtered through him. And I think that's well done. And she doesn't have time to do or even think about anything else besides the health of her kid. 
And so, you know, what, what, what happen, eventually happens is Carol stops coming to work. Melvin pays for a doctor to go to her house so that she'll come back to work. It's a very selfish, a generous thing, but a very selfish thing he does. And, like, he, he clearly doesn't even realize how big of a deal it is, that the gesture he's doing Correct. that's changing her life and changing her son's life. He doesn't even realize that. He just wants her back at work. Um, and so once that happens, once, like, her son is, like, better to an extent, suddenly she has – suddenly she can be a person. For the first time in, you know, probably 10 years since her kid was, you know, eight or 10 years, whatever, however long her kid's been alive. And I think, I guess, you know, she she makes the comment to her mom about how, like, she was disappointed that the doctor was married, that the Harold Ramis was married. She's, she clearly just, like, suddenly the, the world has opened up to her and she doesn't know what to do with that. And she has these feelings of, like, relief and gratitude that her son is feeling better and she doesn't know what to do with that either. And so she kind of, like... You know, she writes a 27-page note to Melvin, and, like, I don't know. It's I, – I, TJ, I guess I'm trying to defend the romance to an extent – beyond, like, the script necessitates it. And I guess I'm trying to defend, like, her decision to um, pursue Melvin's the wrong word. But, like, I guess realistically, she goes – she, she goes on this trip to Baltimore out of obligation because he obligates her. And I, I also like that exchange where he where she says, you're telling me that I, I have to go to Baltimore with you because you did this for me. And he's like, is there any other way to see it? Great line. Um, and it's on this trip that she like starts to like kind of see him in a new light. I mean, how, how do you buy the the compliment scene, TJ? How does that scene work on you? I mean, that's fine. My thing is just it, it mostly has to do with the ending where why can't they just be kind acquaintances? She goes either to you shouldn't be in my life or I'm going to entertain there being a romance here. Why can't I have a normal boyfriend is what she says. Yeah. And it's like, you know, some people, there are people in the middle where like you're not dating them and you don't completely shun them. Like it's called everybody else in your life. And so I don't really understand that at all. And then the movie frames it as this weird sort of like, so is he like her sugar daddy then? And then we're supposed to believe that she like kind of cures his OCD because he can walk on the cracks on the floor whenever he's with her. And I'm like, that's really overlooking some very complicated things that people go through. Plus not to mention not, and, and you know, there are age discrepancies in relationships that work. See Michael Douglas and Catherine Zeta Skarn. However, (laughs) um, he's 60 years old. Jack Nicholson, Helen Hunt is 34 in this. So, like, if this were made now, this is Jennifer Lawrence and Brian Cranston. Just to be clear, like, just to just to throw that out there, just be clear, everybody. Shirley Knight plays Helen Hunt's mother in this film. Shirley Knight is less than a year older than Jack Nicholson, so that's the that's the night and day dichotomy. So it's this weird. Even I mean, I don't know that he he does kind of manipulator and kind of guilt tripper, and it's like you need me because I kept your son alive, so you have to put up with all of my bullshit. I it just I don't know it doesn't work for me that at all. That part that's the thing. Being in Melvin's world is a curse and a blessing because if he deems you essential to his his world, his world revolves around routine. He needs everything that he chooses that he needs, right? So if he deems you essential that he has to interact with you, you're one of the few people that he apparently there's no there's no limit that he won't go beyond to make sure that you're still there for him and doing whatever it is he needs from you, which means spending an outrageous amount of money saving her son's life just because I don't he know needs if it's an her. Outrageous amount of money, honestly. 
It it might be. We don't know how. I mean, depending on how much time, how much care will be involved, it's not necessarily made perfectly clear. But this is not. It's not assumed to be a short process. The doctor's going to treat him for a while. I think the point of that sequence was like it's the the contrast of like poor people's access to health care and well off people's access to health care. And it's not like it's not like he did anything extravagant for her. It's just a doctor paying attention to the kid for the first time ever, presumably, and not just like brushing them off in the ER and like. Just a a woman who works as a waitress and doesn't make a whole lot of money, just like getting kind of standard healthcare for the first time, is literally life changing, you know. And like, no, that's, I don't know that's not. But yeah, my point my point being the fact that he does that. He goes to that limit. Most people wouldn't go there, but he does just because he needs her at the restaurant waiting on mm-hmm. him because nobody else will. And he knows she knows exactly how to deal with him. Yeah, other people will, but not in a way that he likes. Like the second waitress comes up to him and like touches his silverware right. and he freaks out. About and Simon, Simon also ends up entering this world and he accepts him. Is it because, partially because of the dog? Yes. The point is though, Melvin's world, if you're essential, congratulations, he'll do anything for you, but you have to put up with all of his shit. Right. So I, I want to address a few things that TJ said. So first off, uh, the, you, you bump on the last part of the movie where like, Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson get together. I also bump on that. That's also my least favorite part. Let me go through... That's the climax of the movie. <laughs> well, hold on. Let me just go through very, very quickly the seven acts as I see them. So, act one is uh, Verdell and Melvin, Carol's date, and Melvin's first breakfast. That's that's all act one. It's all set up. It's all just explaining the world. Uh, act two is when Simon is attacked, when Melvin asks about Carol's son for the first time, and when Melvin is asked to watch Verdell. While Simon is recovering. Act three is when Melvin is in crisis because he has to give Verdell back, having fallen in love with Verdell. And also Carol is no longer at work. So that kind of sends him into a spiral. It's just Melvin in crisis twofold because of Verdell and Carol. Uh, Act four is the doctor where Melvin fixes the problem he sees in his life, which is get Carol back at work and accidentally fixes every problem in Carol's life by sending a doctor to her house. And also uh, Simon kind of hitting rock bottom and him kind of becoming more intertwined with Melvin because of Verdell, because Melvin's like taking Verdell for walks and stuff like that. Uh, Act five, act five is the trip to Baltimore, which the movie's just taken a a left turn an hour and 14 minutes in. They go to Baltimore. Uh, Act six is after, Melvin fumbles the bag with Carol and kind of drives Carol to Simon and Carol and Simon have their wonderful evening together. And Melvin is once again in the doghouse and then act seven, which is the the pl- place that bumps TJ and also bumps me is just the last 15 minutes of Megan and K- Melvin and Carol getting together. And I guess I say all that to TJ's point is I think the movie should have ended when they got home from Baltimore and this movie is 20 minutes too long and we don't need those last 20 minutes and I agree with you, TJ, that why can't Melvin just be like a person in Carol's life? Why does it have to be one or the other? Well, and that's that's the issue, I, a big issue I have with the film. Maybe the biggest issue I have with the film is because it's a romantic comedy, it has to go there. Mm-hmm. And if it were not a romantic comedy, then it could have been about something else. It could have been about a bigoted curmudgeonly man learning to open up and care for people and things. It, it could it, have been. It is about that, though. It is about that. But not just about that well it, right? it's i think what we're talking about the ending feels forced because it feels like it's an add-on to what josh is pointing out is I exactly what agree. it's about yeah. the curmudgeon does open up to everybody you don't need the last part but we're but there by the time on. they get back in baltimore we're already there right we're there right you know? 
they add it on. And the the romantic comedy aspect too is like you're you're watching the whole time going, okay, what are the obstacles of these two people getting in love? That's how rom coms yep. work. Is there yep. and and typically in the past it's been um financially you know it's been class it's been economy uh it's been race it's been gender there's all sorts of different things and the obstacle here seems to be uh, not his age not his affluence it's that he's has ocd so then in the end it's like well when he's with helen hunt he doesn't have it anymore and that's just a really really strange to use that as an a a rom-com obstacle when other rom-com obstacles are usually about social norms or mores that we have to get over or set aside, it it takes this thing that's like actually a serious ailment that people have and treats it as a personality quirk. Yeah. Okay. So let's, I want to talk about how this movie's aged and like, I kind of wanted to frame it in terms of like the verbal barbs that Melvin gives, but I also kind of want to talk about it in terms of OCD. They're related. Um, and let's, let's have the OCD conversation now then. Um, first of all, do they ever actually say obsessive compulsive disorder in this movie? Yes. Or do they just allude to it? Yeah. They do. Okay. When he barges into the doctor, he says, you can't okay. You're right. diagnose someone with obsessive compulsive and pretend that I had some sort of say in doing that. Right. So Lawrence Kasdan brought up OCD. Okay. Um, TJ, I think your point, and I agree with this point, is that obsessive compulsive disorder is a serious illness, and it's kind of treated like a personality quirk here in the movie. Yeah. Um, and and kind of cute and funny like look he has to unlock the doors five times and look he can't step on the cracks and like he trains the dog to do that and it's it's treated as this thing kind of like do you remember the tv show monk which was around shortly after this okay but but again it's this like well house is cranky monk has ocd and it's it's treated like this uh isn't that guy kind of eccentric and that's a completely different thing than like the actual ailment is. So I think it's using it as the shorthand to be like, this person is difficult, but it's sort of like, I don't know if the word is ableist, but it's, it's uh, really short sighted. I, I want to push back a little because I don't, I don't think same thing with monk. I don't think that the, that the show or the, the, in this case, the film is trying to necessarily make that light of it, they do accurately reflect some of the behaviors of OCD, for sure. The problem is more in those around the character. For example, Monk. You mentioned Monk, so I'm going to use this as an example. OCD is often brought up, and sometimes it's used and it can feel like a quirk, when in fact it's actually highlighting other people, the people without the OCD, the people around the individual with OCD, who don't know how to interact with this person and kind of write it off as a, as a personality quirk. And this person is just weird, different, it's aha funny, and they don't take it as seriously because of this quirk, which is the whole purpose of Monk. In this case, my concern is that Melvin isn't just suffering from OCD. He's got he's he's a narcissist, first and foremost. He's also possibly suffering from what I had to look up, but would be schizoid personality disorder, in the sense that he is not at all interested in social activity, right? He's a recluse. He prefers to stay away from interacting with other humans. That's not OCD, necessarily. Well, right. But I, I don't think we should go take this down the road of like psychoanalyzing a fictional character that kind of just exists on the page. I think we have to take what's in the movie. And what's in the movie is they, that, that phrase and that diagnosis and it being in there as just this sort of like, you again, used as a quirky obstacle. And I don't think this movie needs to be like, 
a stark expose of Melvin's struggle, I think it doesn't need to be in there at all. Well, that's that's kind of what I was going to say is that like, yeah, I, I completely agree that this takes a serious illness and kind of, I don't want to say makes light of it, but maybe doesn't take it as seriously as it deserves to be taken. But also, as good as it gets is far from the only culprit in like minimizing OCD in oh, sure. his life. Sure. You know, and like, I mean, you mentioned Monk, not that Monk minimizes it, but like also like in the larger cultural consciousness at, law, at large, people will be like, oh, I, I'm so OCD. No, you're not. You just organized your books by color. It's right. like the third most <laughs> popular way to organize books. That doesn't mean you're OCD. It's right. Just, it's, right. It's it's flippantly discussed, not just you know in movies, but in the pop culture at large. And like it may be a little flippant here, but um, my I don't know. Again, I guess my point is it's it's not that I don't have a problem with the way OCD is displayed in the film or used in the film. I agree with you. It's a little too lighthearted, probably for, to age very well, and it's a little cringe-inducing. The problem I have is that OCD is the only thing referenced that he seems to be suffering from, but it doesn't explain all of his character issues. And that is essential to understand the character of Melvin. I think that's the biggest weakness of the film in dealing with Melvin. The fact that, oh, we'll just lump this all into he's OCD. But that does a disservice to people who OCD who aren't pricks. That does a disservice <laughs> to, to people with OCD who don't don't try to stay away from interacting with any other human beings if they don't have to. It's just, it seems to be this like catch all and it might, it might allow viewers to misperceive the disorder, which does a disservice again to those who actually are legitimately suffering from it. Yeah. It's, it's like characterization shorthand. Right. And so I think it's kind of bad writing. (laughs) Maybe it's lazy. I mean, I guess, I, I guess it's not a great sign that like, this is maybe my fault, but like, if you ask me to name a fictional character with OCD, Melvin's my first answer, and that might not be a, a, a good thing, you know. But like, when someone asks me about an OCD character, I immediately think of Jack Nicholson washing his hands in super hot water with two bars of soap, yes, and locking his door five times, you know, flicking mm-hmm. on the light and, switch five times. He's he does things things. in fives. But I guess to TJ's point is that is used as an obstacle in the romance in the romance element and i tj i think that's so smart that you th- that you say that romantic comedies are always about social obstacles and i remember you and i having a conversation about that like two years ago and like it kind of opened my eyes and i can't watch romantic comedy not think of that so good job and you're right that it's kind of just there to to fall away due to helen hunt like there's a very notable scene where um, in that last act, that seventh act that I don't really like very much, where he has invited Simon to stay with him, which I think I think works. I like that scene. Yep. And then he Simon's like, you know, go get her to go see Helen Hunt or whatever, to basically mirror the gesture she did earlier in the movie where he shows up at her house in the middle of the night. And um, he says, I didn't lock my door. As he leaves his apartment, he realizes he didn't lock his door. So, like, again, like Helen Hunt being in his life is kind of like – making his OCD erode a little bit. And then, you know, the movie ends with him stepping on a crack. That's the last beat of the movie, basically, yeah. Which which there is support and research to suggest that when yeah, other, other things go well in people's lives, particularly uh, love, companionship, things like that, that a lot of the anxiety that prompts compulsive behaviors can be lessened. But this idea that, like... I'm love struck, so like now I'm. Yeah, it's it feels very trite well, to me. Okay, so in defense of the story, I guess there are like some breadcrumbs of like, you know, he mentions 
fairly offhand on the road to Baltimore that his dad used to smack him with a ruler if he messed up playing the piano, yeah. Yeah. you know? So, like, that could instill some personality quirks in someone, I'm oh, sure. Oh, for sure, some, for sure. You know? And so, like, you, you could... It, really reading between the lines and kind of digging deeper into the character, you could possibly surmise that like it's a lack of love that made him this way, and some maybe these quirks—I I shouldn't call it a quirk—but maybe this diagnosis from Lawrence Kasdan is possibly manifested because it's him exercising some control over the world around him when he otherwise didn't feel control when like his dad was smacking his hands with the ruler, etc. And Again, kind of the, the arc of the movie is he learns to love this dog improbably and then learns to love other things as well. Like it's that's when he starts asking about Carol's son and taking an interest in her personal life, you know, and, you know, maybe there is something to the fact that like once he opens himself, opens himself up to other people, you know, the, mm-hmm. the manifestations of his past trauma could begin to fall away a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, there's a great, I, I do love when movies tell you and, and underline it for you, like what the movie's about, especially early on. And what's the great push in on Greg Kinnear's face in the opening scene? It's a big, you don't love anyone, Mr. Udall. You don't love anyone, Mr. That's Udall. It's so heavy though. It's so heavy. I like that you though. I like that shit. Okay. That works on me always, especially because he's got his dewy eyes. He's constantly on the verge of tears and it's just like underlining the thesis statement of the movie for you and circling it highlighting it and like here here we are uh i don't know that works on, I'm, maybe i'm just a simpleton that works on me i will give it credit for having the cojones to completely flip the adage the proverb of save the cat that th- there's this adage that your characters no matter how flawed or potentially dislikable they are need to do something within the first like three to seven minutes of the movie like save a cat from traffic to get the audience on their side exactly um, another th- another way you can do it is just put them in a situation where even if they kind of suck, they're the least suckiest person or they're the, the person who, you know, something like the Wolf of Wall Street, they're the person with like the least amount of experience, etc. This movie opens with a 180 turn of Save the Cat, which is throw the dog down the trash. Yes, trash chute. Within, within the first two minutes of the movie, that dog is in the trash chute yes. before the title even comes up. Yeah, that's a very balls out way to start it um, fades to black from the dog going down the chute and then the title fades up yeah yes. it's really I love it. very disturbing very and disturbing within a few minutes thereafter we do get interactions with him and greg Kinnear. greg Kinnear utters that line and then he's got his interaction with cuba gunning jr as frank and he starts screaming assault and battery and you're black He's literally trying to draw attention, even though nobody in the building would ever come to help Melvin Udall if he were in trouble. But he's literally trying to set up and accuse this guy of something. Well, he's going to take it. Look, I'm a white guy. You're a black guy. Again, he's he's a truly horrible human being by all Playing accounts. Playing every terrible card he can yes. play. Yes. He's one after the other. Every moment we've dealt we've we've had with him in the first 15 minutes is just terrible interaction after terrible interaction. Well, how does what's the first shot of the movie? It's the neighbor's door. The neighbor opens oh, up, yes. and it's like a nice old lady, lady. And she says, it's tulip season. I'm going to go get some flowers. I'm oh so happy. And then she sees something off screen. We're still in her face. We don't see what she's seeing. But she sees something that turns her smile upside yes. down. And she mouths, son of a bitch, and then closes the door. Tulips be damned. Whatever's out in the hallway, she's not going to have it. It's more important than tulips. And then we reverse to Melvin trying to lure the dog 
into the elevator. And I also I also love this is a small detail, but uh, we see Jack Nicholson on camera at the elevator trying to lure the, lure the dog in. Title comes up that says Jack Nicholson, and Jack Nicholson's in frame with his own name. And then it reverses to the dog, and it says Helen Hunt, as if the dog is Helen Hunt. That dog is one of the great movies. Jill. <laughs> Jill the dog, playing for Dell. Yes. Jill the dog. What a cute little dog. Mm-hmm. Yes. Cute little face. And, and brilliant, a very, very uh, good dog game. Brilliant yes. dog performance, yeah. Uh, Ken, you mentioned Cuba Gooding Jr., who is a few months off of winning Best Supporting Actor for Jerry Maguire. I can only assume they filmed this before he won the Oscar, because otherwise, I don't think he would have taken this role. I don't... I mean, he would have probably accepted the role before he won the Oscar, but I think they probably shot it after the previous Oscars. He's this, really, this is back, really could, bad in this. He's really bad. They could shoot this film fairly quickly and edit it, and we could talk about... Look, the editing, by the way, Richard Marks worked on Godfather Part uh, 2. He, he's not a bad editor, but this thing was quickly edited, I think, relatively speaking. Mm. It's it's a quirk of the 90s. You could just get a movie out. TJ, what do you think of, what do you think of Cuba? I, I think he's really bad. I think he's really over the top. I think he's leaning heavily into some stereotypes. Um, he's really going for it. He's yeah. really going for it. He's swinging big. Here. And and yeah. I think he looks particularly bad next to Greg Kinnear because I think Greg Kinnear is actually really, really good in this. And I, I love Greg what, Kinnear in this. What I love about him in this is he we, – we still have people doing performances that are like quote-unquote gay face. Um, see James Corden in The Prom where it's like the one way to play gay is to go like super, super camp. And – what Kinnear does so well in this, he's so good at, first of all, just playing lovable losers, which Simon is kind of a lovable loser, um, is that he brings a gentleness and a femininity to his role without ever going super, like, stereotypically off the, yeah. deep, the deep end. And I think that Cuba Gooding Jr. does that in his performance. I think, yeah, Kinnear is really thread and needle. Yeah, I agree. What, is the, what yeah. was the name of that terrible Cuba Gooding Jr. movie where he goes on the gay cruise? This is this is more in that boat ter- trip. Yeah, boat trip. This is more in that territory. I mean, he's coming off of Jerry Maguire, and he's still riding high off of Show Me the Money. He can't seem to tone it down. So I was going to say, I kind of said in the text, I don't really know what happened to Greg Kinnear's movie career after this movie, but we all know what happened to Cuba Gooding Jr.'s movie career after this. He did Radio, uh, sh- Snow Dogs, Boat Trip. Men of Honor, which is another Oscar play that didn't work. Do you remember Radio? Radio, which is an oh, Oscar play that yeah. really, really didn't oh. work. And man, his career just went downhill post Oscar. I mean, I don't know, man. Uh, but yeah, Greg Kinnear. Uh, I think that I agree, TJ. It's an interesting contrast between Greg Kinnear's performance and Cuba Gooding's performance. I never really thought of that, but I just thought, yeah, Cuba's going really big. I don't dislike it as much as you do, but like, I don't think it's very good. I guess. Um, but Greg Kinnear is very good. He's excellent. And I think that we talked about the fact that Nicholson's performance and Nicholson's charisma makes the acerbic humor work and the like the offensive humor kind of work a little bit but i also think it works because of greg kinnear and i guess we can circle this back to the how is this age conversation but melvin says some really offensive things particularly in this first like 15 minutes um but i think it's important to it's important distinction to make that the movie is not really on his side the movie knows that what he's saying is ignorant and offensive and like the the cinematic language tells us that and what I mean, what I mean by that is the reaction shots. Uh, we get a lot of reaction shots to Melvin's barbs 
I think we're and, supposed. To, I think we're still supposed to laugh at them, though. Like it does kind of have its cake and eat it too. Well, I guess I think you're right. I'm gonna real quick. I want to jump and side with Josh here, though. The characters within the universe of the movie don't put up with it. Like they don't give him a pass on it. It's not like, oh, that's just Melvin being uh, Melvin. I mean, they they kind of do. No, though. like people moment, call him out, but no, moment Carol is not in the restaurant. And they have the opportunity. They throw his ass out of the cafe, right? Like, and then he's back it. later. So. <laughs> Okay, but I guess what I'm saying is there's a version of this where Melvin says something offensive and it cuts to Greg Kinnear's reaction and he gives like a like an eye roll, like a oh Melvin kind of reaction. And in that case, if they did that, that would just be a laugh break. Right. But they don't do that. They instead like it's a horrified expression. And again, Greg Kinnear is constantly on the verge of tears. He's got these dewy eyes. And it's like, oh my God, how horrible are you? Kind of reaction. And I'm not saying it's not also a laugh break, but it at least TJ just to your point is, I guess, having its cake and eating it too. But in terms of people pushing back on him, um, I do like that. Uh, so he refers to Cuba Gooding as, a, as the that colored fellow that was here earlier. And Greg Kinnear correctly says, what color was that? Basically like, you know, calling him out on an outdated term for a person of color. And uh, <laughs> Melvin just completely calls his bluff and says, oh, like thick molasses. molasses. That's the way he, he goes way over the Not top. a good thing to say about somebody, you know, but <laughs> probably wouldn't make it into a movie in 2023. But like the fact that he's basically calling out Greg Kinnear's bluff to like Greg Kinnear's being PC and calling out Melvin's non-PC-ness. And then Melvin kind of calls his bluff a bit. What's what's a bluff about that? Because Greg Kinnear knows what Melvin means when uh-huh. he says the colored fella. So yeah. Greg Kinnear is being a little bit purposefully obtuse by saying what color is that by like trying to make Melvin acknowledge that's not the right thing to say. He thinks he's making right him un- to use there. comfortable as one as one one would normally feel in that moment. Yeah, it's not that Greg Kinnear is confused. Yeah, and so he's saying what color is that being purposely obtuse. Mm-hmm. So again, Melvin is playing along with that. And playing, he says, okay, if you want to play this game, let's play this game. Thick molasses, you know? Um, and then he gets the last word in that exchange. He does. I mean, he, that's, that's true. Well, then doesn't Cuba Gooding enter the, enter the conversation at that point? I don't remember. Yeah, because Cuba Gooding comes in and ushers him back into the party. Do want to touch a little bit, let's keep talking about Greg Kinnear's performance, I think, here, and this, and, and the role of Simon in the film, because for my money, this, it, it's not a romantic comedy so much as a relationship comedy. That's the relationship that works with me throughout. Because if this film ends with the two of, with, with him taking Simon in, and it's not going to be like forever. It's just, he's temporarily taking this guy in, right? That line and that exchange works for me. And I think that's the best, that arguably the nicest comment and exchange in the whole film. When he looks at, he looks at Melvin and Simon says, I love you, Melvin. And Nicholson delivers perfectly. He just looks down and shakes his head, looks back up and says, I tell you, buddy, if that did it for me, I'd be the luckiest man in the world. I really like that line a lot. It is a great line, and it's it speaks so much to what I think is the preferable relationship dynamic in this movie, because the two of them have some of the best scenes. Greg Kinnear is great in the scene where he's so raw that he takes a swing at Melvin in the apartment. Yeah. He's brilliant in that scene. My favorite scene in the movie is when they are both calling Verdell and trying to get him, and Nicholson's trying to get Verdell to go to Kinnear without Kinnear seeing it. That's the um, scene. That's my favorite. Yeah, part. that's the yeah. sequence I'm talking about. Yeah, where he he shows up, and I mean, this is Simon literally at rock bottom. He doesn't get any lower yeah. than this in the movie, 
And he, to the point that he's about to, he does, not about to, he does attack Melvin. And Melvin just kind of like stumbles backwards and out of the way. Um, so Greg Kinnear brings a lot to the role. I, I still, I still have some issues though with where their relationship goes, just in the sense that rom-com wise, it then goes that like Greg Kinnear ends up playing the kind of gay best friend to the leading man at the end where he's like, go get her. You're, you know, oh, and you're the one who's dying here. But when Melvin gets the call that, uh, they, they rented out Simon's apartment, he's pretty happy. He's like, well, you're homeless. We're going to find somewhere else. Does it matter? And even when his stuff is there, he's still throwing at him. And you people are supposed to be sensitive and smart. So I don't see this as the two of them really burying any sort of hatchet other than... Sure, Melvin's doing something he wouldn't have done at the beginning of the movie. So the needles moved a tad. But it's still like, this is on my terms. You're accepting my gratitude and my charity and my hospitality. And I'm, I still get to make you the victim of my verbal abuse if I want to. I, I disagree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the daylight between never knock on this door. Do you get me, sweetheart? Yeah. The daylight between that and inviting him into his home to stay with him for a semi-permanent basis for however long it is, is enormous. And to say that like their dynamic hasn't, the needles moved only a little bit, I think is crazy. The needles moved a shit ton. Um, I think. There's a there's a line. Uh, I think it's Simon talking to. I think it's when Greg Kinnear's talking to Skeet Ulrich, and he's talking about his process in painting. And he he specifically says, "You look at someone long enough, and you discover their humanity." By the end of the film, he's clearly seen something in Melvin he didn't see when we first met them in the beginning of the movie, because he's telling the guy he loves him, and he's genuinely content being there for the time being in Melvin's apartment. They get along. What moment changes Melvin? in regards to his relationship with Simon. We know Simon has the, like, he sees Helen Hunt's butt crack and then his whole world is different. But what moves I don't think it's Melvin? Because moment. remember the night before, he's like, did you have sex with her? It's that morning. Yeah, yeah the morning after the, the, the date that goes awry. But I think it's a series of moments, right? And it might start with, I don't know, it, it's him taking care of the dog, then it's him bringing him soup in the middle of the night with a really... Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, That's what I was going to point to. Really yeah. hilarious, mm-hmm. very short exchange but there is some common common ground between these two men and i think simon starts to see it because simon because greg kinnear also shoots him kind of a a a knowing or even kind of surprise side eye in the car when melvin trying to interrupt to talk about his dad and background again it's something else that they might have in common melvin clearly has issues he's not talking about them and crying about them but there's there's a lot more to this guy that they haven't but he he has no compassion for simon's backstory he mentions at one point that he wants helen hunt on the trip because he's afraid simon's gonna make a move on him i just i I don't know i mean i don't think he's serious about that and simon's not present i don't think that's true i think he's just using it as an excuse to get carol to go on the trip with him i also don't think he has any intention of simon and carol sleeping together i think that's just something he says because he can't be emotionally vulnerable when helen hunt gives him an opening yeah at the crab restaurant and he just blurts out the first thing that comes to his head. Clearly, he has sex with Carol on his mind, but he kind of diverts it to Simon because he can't be emotionally vulnerable and say that I, Melvin, want to have sex with you, Carol, in the you know crab restaurant. Disagree? He did, no, no. I, I hear you. I just, it's still, I don't know. I guess it's kind of the last point I'll make it is a lot of this man's emotional journey seems to be tied to 
a narrative exploitation of like the queer man suffering. And that doesn't totally sit well with me. Well, there, there's certainly a, a straight man savior aspect to that. I think relationship and a straight woman savior. I think more straight. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. yeah. Holy cow. It's like, well, it's, I, I think, I think, Melvin just recognizes suffering in someone else, queer or not. Right. You know, like I like Ken mentioned the scene where he brings the soup over the middle of the night. That's also, I think, when uh, I think that's the same scene where Simon says, uh, first of all, I don't want to paint anymore. And also, direct quote, lucky you, you're here for rock bottom, you absolute horror of a human being. And that's also the scene where they do the Verdell, they're both calling Verdell, and he's got bacon in his pocket and he gives it to Simon. Um, he, he is recognizing through Verdell, incidentally, through both of their respective relationships to Verdell, he's recognizing this guy's in pain. And I think it might be because Melvin has experienced Verdell and like fallen in love with the dog and then had to give the dog back and was a wreck because of it. And now he's recognizing that Simon also has kind of lost Verdell because Verdell prefers Melvin now. So he is recognizing the pain. Melvin felt pain when Verdell left him, and now Simon's feeling that similar pain. I think that's what Melvin is recognizing. It's an incredibly you know? human so, human moment and incredibly out of character when he pulls the bacon out, totally knowing that that's not the reason Verdell is coming, is, 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 seems to be fixated on him. But yes, he is clearly doing that thing with his his tongue on his cheek. When he points with his tongue, Pointing, is yes. maybe my favorite moment in the whole movie. Yes. <laughs> Setting, trying, he's patting. He's he's very cautiously patting his lap, leaning back, and trying to send the dog signals as if as if Verdell is going to listen or pick up on his. Yeah, he's trying to get him to catch a break. He's trying yeah. to get Simon to catch a break. He's recognize he recognizes Simon's suffering again, queer or not. I think. Um, but I completely agree, TJ. There is a straight woman savior in the. Act, what I designated as Act Six, which is basically the entire thing with Carol and Simon. What do we think about that? Because I mean, there's certainly he's he's she's like the mother figure suddenly to him, and we he's explained the background, the fact that his mother, I guess, was the first person who sat for him, certainly first person sat sit nude for him as an artist, uh, which is what ultimately resulted in his father flipping out. For the first, you know, first time we beat him. Yes. I, so I guess what my take on this sequence is, Ken, you already mentioned the scene where Greg Kinnear says to Skeet Ulrich, um, you look at someone long enough, you see their humanity. I think that scene in what I've designated as act two is a little bit clunky. And like his explanation there seems like very written to use a TJ phrase. Yeah. It seems like a very written speech. And like, I don't really totally buy it in that moment. However, the payoff, I think works. The payoff in act six is when he just sees Helen Hunt. He's trying to fall asleep. He just sees her in the bathtub, and then, boom. Okay, can I tell you the worst line, like, ever? Do not say the line you're about to say, but go ahead. <laughs> you're why cavemen chiseled on walls. I love that That line. is maybe the worst line anyone has line. ever written. It's, that's not true. That's out of, like, a Tommy Wiseau film. That's so bad. <laughs> that's not you're true. You're why cavemen chiseled on You're a cynic. I think on. that line's beautiful. It's disgusting. Oh, my gosh. No, that line's beautiful. It's no. maybe, like... The, and second worst is what is the what if this is as good as it gets? I like, love that's that. Also a great I love no, that don't dramatically say the title of the movie. Like, I, just, I just vomit no, no. and I roll my eyes. It's horrible. Context. It's horrible. He, the fact that he says it in a room in a waiting room filled with psychiatric patients that is that is perfect comedy, right? But there. it's so on the nose. It's so obvious. okay. 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 So I used to I used to have your take, TJ. Where when I first saw this, I thought it was clunky. A little sweaty, and it was just shoving the title of the movie into the movie in a clunky way. I now have the opposite take, and my take is that 
that's one of the best lines in the movie, and that's why it's the title of the movie, not the other way around. Like, I, I don't know what the working title of this movie was, but they identified the best line in the movie and called the movie that, I think. I don't know that it matters either way. It still is just this, like, ah, I need my character to have a moment of realization. Let him say it out loud. Like, these are moving pictures. I'm not even sure it's realization so much as just, like, ruining those people's day. <laughs> and they, like, audibly react. Someone goes, ah, when he says it. <laughs> it, is a, it is, it's a funny scene. It's a funny moment. And, yeah, it does. it also does contribute to show some some development in Melvin. Like, throughout this film, he's the one having the largest arc. Like, I guess we'll say positive arc, because unfortunately, the two primary supporting characters are both suffering at various points in this film. Like, Well, so is Melvin. He's just suffering in things that maybe other people would not call suffering, but he's personally suffering. At least he thinks he is. Sure, good point. I mean, yeah, he is, he's got these disorders. He's clearly suffering from anxiety, and... That is that is car- that is harming him whether he knows it or not from the beginning of the film. Um, I just want to say though, like back to the Greg Near drawing. I think I have to draw you is also a great line, and I think that again it was a clunky setup when he's talking to Skeet Ulrich, but I think the payoff is is worth it when he when that comes back like two hours later drawing Helen Hunt. I think that's great. Part of that is he just might not be he, he might not be playing very well off of Ulrich because is. Is he giving him much to work with in those scenes? Like skilled. Whatever happened to Skeet Ulrich too? Yeah, <laughs> boy, he, like he looks like Johnny Depp, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. Look Holy like cow! He looks, like, he, he looks more like Johnny Depp in Scream than he does in uh, As Goes It Gets, which is the year the year after. But and why didn't he have a movie career? I'm sorry, but he I don't know. he's so I, I I can't stand that scene really because of his character. He's just plays him so too awkwardly, too awkwardly, even for the character supposed to be somewhat awkward. I can't. I buy do it. like. I do like that he warms to Simon and, like, regrets the robbery even as it's taking place, you know? Like, I kind of like that part where he, like, Simon encounters his robbers, Jamie Kennedy and that third guy, and turns to Skeet Ulrich and says, again, on the verge of tears, as he always is in this movie, why are you doing this? And then Skeet Ulrich can only, like, stutter a response of, like, wait, 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 that that painting in there. And then before he can even get out the rest of the sentence, he gets uh, Simon gets attacked um i like that i like that beat that like si- uh, simon was able to <laughs> potentially turn this guy's life of crime around by painting him really well you know by seeing his humanity i guess to use the parlance of the movie what else is there uh oh um i guess i want to talk about real quick the ending that i don't like that tj else doesn't like when they have their encounter in the stairwell and Nicholson gives that really good line of like, uh, I, I had to see you, you know, or whatever. And that's a simple line. It's a good line. And then like um, Helen Hunt gives the, why can't I have a normal boyfriend line, which I, I really don't like that line. I, don't I hate it, honestly. But then it's followed up by an even worse moment, I think, when the mom comes in because she was like over. She was like eavesdropping. eavesdropping and she says, everybody wants that, dear. It doesn't exist. Uh, I can't stand that. That line is so pat. That story beat is so pat, and uh, it sucks. And again, this is why I really don't like this last like fifteen twenty minutes. It's not a great. Ex- it's not a great exchange. And honestly, Shirley Knight, her whole character is just kind of flitting in and out. And I'm not wild about her interactions. She doesn't give the best advice. I feel yeah. like she's not the strongest support for Carol at all in this movie, um, other than the fact that she's a built-in babysitter when she's going into the city for work. But like, it doesn't. Doesn't really fit with me, and again, I think this is why I probably prefer the dynamic between Melvin and Simon, because I think all of the weakest parts of this film, 
taking away the fact that the OCD aspect and the way it's depicted doesn't age very well, the weakest elements are all in the Melvin Carroll storyline. Um, you just, you don't, that's supposed to be the romantic aspect to the story, and you're just not really buying it, and it's not sold very well at the end that it, it would result that way. Like they're supposed to be starting some kind of relationship. And as I think we talked about earlier, why is that the natural? Why does it have to be the, the natural next step here, given everything we've seen up to that point? I think because most of this movie just plays to really heightened emotions and really kind of obvious. It goes in a lot of the most obvious places that it can go and it goes there hard. Sure. I guess the, the lesson to people, though, is if somebody does something so out outrageously generous life-changingly generous yes um that doesn't mean you should feel so obligated as to like rush you know rush into a relationship with them it means like you said earlier she doesn't rush into a relationship with him well i mean but she kind of i mean she she moves quickly into like let's her first reaction is i will never sleep with you and then she's goes on a trip with him out of obligation platonically and then realizes oh he's kind of sexy on that trip, that's that's the. No, she thing. says she already felt that way. So that's the thing. She's she felt that she's only saying that though. That's a line, I think. My favorite line is when she's running after him to get the cab, <laughs> and the kid goes, "Melvin, wait, shut up, kids." <laughs> that's my favorite part of the movie. I think. Do you think that would work on a group of like third graders yelling, just Jack Nicholson yelling at them once, and they would shut up immediately? I don't think that would work. I think probably that would make them double down. Probably Jack Nicholson to third graders yes yeah okay <laughs> i was gonna say i think i think it works jack delivers it just right okay a few of the things i want to hit i want to talk about harold ramus real quick um i adore him in this uh you you're making a face tj i, I think he sticks out as he's not you could tell he's not an actor oh but i think he is an actor though. i think there's uh, a great there's a great soft remember sydney pollock <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I agree. What about Sidney Pollock? I agree with Josh. I think there's a great softness to that scene, and it's it's delivered so poignantly from Ramis. I agree. Okay, he's got some gravitas to him that like I buy him as like this kind of doctor for rich people yeah. that like also is warm and will make a house call to Brooklyn. I don't know. I th- I think you know. I guess the, the context helps the fact that again, it's like this you know uh, woman who's to make a whole lot of money suddenly getting health care that she probably should have been getting the, all along, and like the whole thing about access to healthcare in this country and how much that sucks but also like um i don't know there's the uh the empathy coming from him and like the here's my home number that kind of thing and it makes me really miss harold ramus even though i don't really i don't really have much of a relationship to him that that other people do like i basically only know him because he directed groundhog day and he's in this and he's in one scene of knocked up and like those three things are enough for me to really miss Harold Ramis. You know, I'm not really a Ghostbusters guy, but like I miss Harold Ramis because of the Doctor and as good as it gets and Seth Rogen's dad. That scene also offers up an opportunity when she finds out that the only reason her son's not getting the tests that he needed and could have had was because the insurance company didn't feel they were medically necessary and didn't want to cover them. And her response is fucking HMO bastard pieces of shit. And Ramis's response is actually I think that's their technical name. Exactly. That, How can you not like Harold Ramis in this scene? That's, that's, a, that's a bad line, too. No, it's I'm not. sorry. <laughs> okay, yeah. Why are you such a cynical curmudgeon, Melvin? No, PJ? it's just, like, my eyes hurt from rolling into the back of my head so many times. Schmaltz is the word I can think of. <laughs> okay, again, when I was 19, I would have agreed with you, but I don't know. Like, I just, I've warmed to the movie a lot. It's it's won me over. Okay. It's charming. Um, I guess I also want to talk about, speaking of charming, I want to talk about the compliment. 
the compliment scene that uh, basically the entire entire last hour of the movie is kind of built around this one scene, I feel like. Um, the whole trip to Baltimore is built around this scene. Um, Melvin and Carol's relationship, which kind of ends the movie, is also built around basically this one scene. Um, and that is Melvin and Carol go out to eat at a nice place in Baltimore. He has to get a suit and tie from a neighboring store because he doesn't have one and that it's a coat and tie kind of restaurant which i think is a, a good scene especially because he, earlier she asked if they were going to eat anywhere that required he, that yeah he, so he should have yeah. been prepared which i think any, is any, funny. any place with the dress code and he says sure why not and then he doesn't prepare like she does and i think jack nicholson really cleans up nice like he the does. difference between the difference between how he looks in like his short sleeve button down with a top button unbuttoned blue shirt and then he comes in wearing the same shirt, but now he's got on a tie and a sport coat. He looks crazily better. And, like, kudos to whoever did the costuming here, because, like, that really worked. And then uh, it works in Helen Hunt, too, because that moment where he, like, slowly approaches... She's sitting at the bar, and he slowly approaches her, and the music's going, and it he gives her that little wave that TJ just did and that look, and, like, man... That really works. And Jack Nicholson's still got it. 30 years in his career, he still got it. And her first reaction is, you look so sexy. She's about to say, you look so sexy, but she doesn't. And she instead just says he looks nice, whatever. And so he accidentally insults her by saying, they let you in in that dress. They wouldn't let me in in my, you know, whatever. I need a coat and tie that you, they let you in that sundress. Um, and so she's about to leave. And she says, you need to pay me, you need to pay me a compliment or else I'm leaving. And... He goes into the story about how he has this condition and that pills help and he hates pills. I'm using the word hate here about pills. And he says, the night after you said you never sleep with me, the next morning I started taking the pills. And she says, I don't know how that's a compliment to me. And he says, what, TJ? You make me want to be a better man. That was your Donald Trump impression. That was your Jack no. <laughs> You make me want to be a better man. I'm already really great. But... I can't be a better man than I already am. Um, and holy shit, what a line and what a delivery and what a moment. Uh, Ken and I were talking before with the, put the mic, turn the mics on. And Nicholson doesn't only deliver that line. He, he winds up and delivers that line. He like... She asks him, I don't quite understand how that's a compliment for me. He, like, looks down, kind of looks at the table, and then looks up and delivers the line. And just, like, holy shit, Jack Nicholson in 1997 had the fucking juice. He'd been around for 30 years since Easy Rider in 1969. He'd already won two Oscars, but he still got the fucking juice and honestly, with that delivery. that line... Is, that's a, that's an objectively great romantic comedy line from all romantic One of comedies. my favorite romantic comedy lines, even though I don't really like this as a romantic Correct. comedy. Correct. That's the thing. It, it's because the the date falls apart just literally a couple minutes later. He fum- worldly un- fumbling of the bag yes. within the next two minutes. He fumbles that bag horrendously. But that line is so simple. It's so easily understood. And it is genuine, a genuine compliment. And yes, to your point, Nicholson is probably delivers it better than literally anybody else on earth possibly could. And it matters yeah. so much because he's such a miserable son of a bitch with otherwise very little self-awareness. So I think yeah. it, it, well, it, it's, you know, on its own... A nice line, but within the context of having watched him be a jackass for an hour and 50 minutes. But even that line lacks self-awareness. He doesn't realize how big of a compliment that is. He even says that. She's, 
first of all, uh, the other thing me and Ken were talking about off mic is that he delivers the line that it immediately cuts to her reaction because this is a movie about reaction shots and her reaction really sells it too. And um, by the way, Simon being attacked real quick, Simon being attacked plays out in Verdell's reaction. Again, yep. it's a movie about reaction shots, whether it's verbal violence or physical violence, the movie focuses on the reaction to the violence. Um, but so Helen Hunt's reaction to this compliment and she says, that's maybe the best compliment I've ever heard in my life, or whatever. I don't remember the exact line, but, and then he says, I may have overshot it a bit because I was going for just enough to not get you to walk out the door, which is also a really, really good line said with a sly smile and a glint in his eye that only Jack Nicholson can give it's you. It's charming. And holy shit, I love this exchange so much. It's charming. It's ridiculously charming how, and how well it works. It works so well that she's immediately ready to sleep with him in this moment. And like 30 seconds later, she never would have, or maybe two minutes later, she never would have. I, I don't know. Probably this is probably a few days after she took a bus and a train in the middle of the night and walked in the rain specifically to tell him, "I'll never sleep with you." And now here we are. I don't know. A few days later, a week later, and she sees him in a nice sport coat and jack and tie, and he says, "You make me want to be a better man." And suddenly, yep, I'm ready to go. <laughs> and he just are we again, supposed to like buy it as sincere though? Because we know that he spends his entire life making up these sort of corny romance lines i that make women weak i buy that i buy that he genuinely he he does he's genuinely taking the pills and he does want to improve the problem is his anxiety rears itself up right and so because he he's clearly taking the pills and the pills are meant to make him at least more sociable but we immediately get his frustrations coming out about when she asks him how 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 are those pills working out? Uh, I, hope, I hope those pills are working out for you. I hope, I hope, I hope. To your point, TJ, it's interesting that he he doesn't have any kind of access to his own emotions and he can't process his own emotions. I think that's pretty clear. Like when she calls him out on like he, he said he makes a an offhand comment about her son. The fir- their first thing together, he says, you know, we're all going to die soon. I'll die. You're going to die. Sure. Sounds like your son's going to die. And like it takes him a second to realize, oh, shit, that was over the line. Yeah. And, like, he can tell from her reaction, even Melvin, who is a woefully lacking in emotional intelligence, even he can tell that was over the line. But, like, he can't he can't apologize. He can't even look at her. And, like, she tells him, I need you to understand that you're never going to talk about my son again. Otherwise, you'll never be able to lead her again. I need, I need some sign you understand. Again, he cannot look at her. And so he is not emotionally wired the way that other, other people are emotionally wired. But in order to be a successful romance writer, TJ, to your point, it's interesting that he regurgitates Cuba Gooding Jr.'s line. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, from earlier with the the cop. Cuba Gooding Jr. tells to him, you think you intimidate anybody, you don't intimidate me, I come from hell, uh, my grandma has more attitude than you. And Melvin says those exact lines to a cop later in the movie. So he's kind of like uh, the dude in The Big Lebowski who just kind of like regurgitates lines that he hears in his daily life. And maybe that's how he writes. I don't really know. But... This doesn't feel like a, a romance novel line, and you do you disagree? Do you think it's disingenuous because he's a writer? I'm just wondering how sincerely we're supposed to take it, given that we know that that's his profession and that he kind of savors coming up with that love was, you know, um, and that he doesn't even really take that that seriously because the lady asks him, how do you write women so well? And he's like, I write men and take away reason and accountability. So... I, I don't know how much we buy this because, again, this is what he does all day, every day. It just feels a bit... I don't buy, though, when he says that, by the way, to the receptionist at the publishers, 
I don't buy that that's actually what he, he does. I think he's just, that's another example of him saying something that he knows is going to get her to stop talking to him. I didn't look this up, but I, I hear tell that an actual author did say that exact line, and it was John Updike, and James O. Brooks just like took that and put it in the movie, and kind of like dared John Updike to call him out, because in order to call him out, he'd have to admit that he said that, and it's a really horrible thing to have said. So, you know, James O. Brooks, I guess, won that, because John Updike didn't say anything. So I hear. I did not look this up and confirm that John Updike ever said that, but... I guess to the point, though, when the scenes that we do see him working on his book... I don't buy that. I don't buy the the idea that you know he's he's denigrating uh, the peoples he's writing in his books. The way he seems to describe it to the receptionist, I think again, I think that that's part of the part of the way to possibly liking Melvin or at least finding some redeeming aspects. He doesn't necessarily feel the horrible things he says to people. It's just a tool that he uses to keep people at bay, to keep them distanced from him. Because he does not want to hear anybody praise him. He does not want to hear the praise from the receptionist who clearly loves his books. He wants to get on that elevator, and what does he say? It's like, God, I'm in hell. Because she wants to get up from the, her desk and come over and talk with him and just discuss his books and how wonderful she thinks they are. And no, he doesn't want that. Yeah, and, you know, again, I guess to circle back to what I said earlier, he doesn't have any kind of filter... He just kind of says things, come his head. I love the scene where uh, two things happen in this conversation. Carol tries to read her letter to him, which he <laughs> does not want her to read to him. And, like, she she blurts out, like, a bunch of stuff, and he just says, lovely. And that's, like, the, the most, like, human thing he can say in response. And then he eventually says, hey, can you come on this trip to Baltimore with me and Simon? And that's where she says, uh, you know, what? I'm obligated to come. And he says, is there any other way to see it? Again, he's blunt. And he doesn't, like, realize that's kind of he's being impolite. Or maybe he does realize he's being impolite. But, like, he doesn't have the – he's not emotionally wired the way other people are. So it kind of does give him, like, this bluntness. And even, like, later, uh, Simon says in the last act when he tells her to, you know, go get Carol, he says, quote, the best thing you have going for you is your willingness to humiliate yourself. And it sounds like an insult, but it's actually true. Right. And, like – it's also funny, but it's also like astute. It's a good observation by Simon, and also is kind of what Melvin has going for him. He can show up to Carol's house in the middle of the night and just like say, "I had to see you," and like because he kind of doesn't, he's not wired the same way other people are. He's not really embarrassed by it. the way he like orders their crab dinners from across the <laughs> restaurant <laughs> to the waiter. Again, he doesn't realize he's being a weirdo, you know. And I'll so, tell your waiter. <laughs> fries, fries. <laughs> That's a great scene. What else? What else do we have on a, a, as good as it gets? TJ, any other scenes you want to hit or anything like that? Uh, I don't. No. Um, I guess I just have like like little things. Um, and like I, I don't know. I can go through my notes and point at the little things, but I don't. I don't know if we have time for all that. But like the the moment where like Carol's crying and her mom's just like, "I want to go out," and it cuts to them just like out and like them going out, which is like them walking on the sidewalk. And like in the shot of them walking on the sidewalk, Helen Hunt looks like she can't breathe. It looks like she hasn't been outside the house other than for work in like years. And this maybe maybe be true. And but she kind of like sighs and relaxes and then like takes her mom's arm, kind of leans into her like a. there's a lot communicated there. And I think that's like a a good part of her performance and stuff like that. And there's there's like a lot of little moments like that from her or from Greg Kinnear. But I don't know. Ken, what else do you want to talk about? And as good as it gets. Uh, No, I think we touched all the the, the points that I think are are most astute as as far as what we can pull from this movie. Um, 
Yeah, I, I I think Jack Nicholson is really what carries the movie, and uh, I agree. I, I don't think there's too much to talk about beyond the performances because, as I think we've already alluded to, James L. Brooks, uh, while he's a competent uh, technician, I think. I mean, this is the guy that, that that created the Mary Tyler Moore Show and Taxi, for example, and and The Simpsons. Yes, that's correct. Do you guys know Lisa Simpson's in this? He Lisa Simpson. Yardley Jackie. Smith is yes is his yeah. is Jackie um, Simon's. I don't know what she is like. Published, I don't know what she Manager is. or something? Yeah. The woman who has to break the news to him that he's broken. Um, another great reaction. And the first woman to react to his Yes, face. another great reaction. Like another reaction scene. I like that scene. Yeah. Again, yeah, the movie's about reaction shots. Yeah, exactly. Um, she just, she can't hold it together when, when he pulls the, when, he, when she sees his face for the first time after he's been attacked. Neither can Cuba. For what, for what purpose is the movie about reaction shots? I don't understand the question. That's a, that's an observation, but like, what is it? So what? I still don't understand the question. Well, what do you, what do you mean? I, I, like, what what does that mean? What does that add to our understanding of the movie? Like, there's a lot of reaction shots. Well, I mean, it's you know the interplay between people. Someone says this. Someone reacts this way. Someone mm-hmm. says an, a mean thing. Someone reacts this way. Someone says a nice thing. Someone reacts this way. And like the the growth from saying a mean thing to saying a nice thing, and how the reaction evolves. I don't know. Like. Why is anything about anything? I don't know. <laughs> well, so I don't really you guys, you guys brought it up like three times as something that's unique about the movie. So I was just... I didn't say it's unique. Yeah, I think it's... I said like the, the movie's teaching you how to react to Melvin a certain way by having by showing us other people's reactions to it. It's okay. A, okay. This is where I think, again, I said earlier, I think it's more of a relationship comedy than it is a romantic comedy because it's about these relationships. Because, I mean, frankly, the best relationship Simon, for example, has in the whole movie is Melvin and Carol, right? Because... Frank the is just, Frank, has in the movie. Yeah, I mean, Frank other is, people work for him. Frank you know? is there, but nobody else. Yeah, nobody else is, will come to his to aid him. Not his parents. Not the kindly old lady next door. She won't take Verdell. Jackie won't take Verdell. Jackie won't take Simon and Verdell in. Frank won't take Simon and Verdell in. The nicest thing Frank really does is what lend Melvin his car <laughs> and scare Melvin into not hurting Verdell. That's about it. Other than that, like this is it. Like it's about these relationships, right? Yeah. Let me let me ask this, and before we close, what all these characters are missing something, right? Melvin, Simon, Carol, and to some extent or another, they find what they're missing in each other. What does Simon give Carol? What does Carol give Simon? What does Melvin give Carol? What does Melvin give Simon? Like what what are these characters in need of, and what do they find in each other? Do you think? I mean, I guess I guess the most obvious answer is Simon finds inspiration in Carol. Uh, you know, your white caveman drew on walls. I think there's um, I think inspiration and also complete and unconditional acceptance. Because this is something mm-hmm. else. I, I think I truly do think that there is a connection between Carol and Simon's mother. Literally, we not we, we get we go from from him having his epiphany the night before with Carol, right? To having the phone call the next day with his mother. He rips his cast off like The Rock in the Fast and the Furious <laughs> movies. The next morning, he's on the phone call with his mom canceling the visit. and can't, I, don't, I don't need your money and your help. And instead, he's got Carol to lean on. And when they get back to New York, she gives him a very, very motherly or parental hug. And kind of a, you got my number? You know, call me when you need me. I, I love, love you. I love you too. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's a very... But e- even before... Even before, I think you've identified something, but even before that, on the road to Baltimore, uh, Simon has not yet warmed up to Carol, but he does because she, like, asks him genuine questions about himself and his past. And, like, you can kind of see his walls coming down in real time as he's, like, answering her. Like, 
she's asking him these questions and like the way he delivers his response, it's as if he hasn't even thought about these things himself because no one's ever asked him about it because he is surrounded by people who work for him and that's kind of it, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? So like someone taking a genuine interest in how he is and, you know, you know, he was, he was viciously attacked and the only conversations he's had in the wake of that is you're broke and, and, ugly. and, and, and ugly and you look like a monster. So like no one's really checked in and being like, Hey man, how are you doing? Like, no one's asked him that. And so suddenly he has this woman asking, tell me about your mom. Tell me about why you started painting. Tell me about, you know, this, and that, and the other. And like that genuine interest in like how he's doing and how he, you know, why his relationship with his parents is fraught and what the whole purpose of this trip to Baltimore is. Like, I think that really opens things up for Simon. On the other side of that coin, Carol, just like being able to have an adult conversation with somebody that's not her, not about her son yes. and not her son and not Melvin. Yes. <laughs> that's like, so again, again, like the doctor visit opens up Carol's whole world. And like part of this new world is, hey, there's this interesting adult that I can talk to and befriend and like listen to. And someone else to take care of now that her son's like, okay. Well, that's true. Yes. That's, that's also She needs a new project. Carol is seemingly yes. a very caring person and she's able to expand her concern and care for people other than just um, her son, just Spencer. I think it's a really good detail that she pulls the car over in order to give him her full attention yeah. when he's telling the story about his mom. I think that's like a really, really good character moment in good detail. That's it. Um, I just want to throw this out here. Uh, Jack Nichols or Melvin's, Melvin's got all of those CDs in the car ready to go. There's like six of them lined up that. in the yeah. center median. Uh-huh. He's also got the emergent CD, CD in the glove box. Which we need a slow motion shot to yeah, it is a weird. I don't. I'm never. Every time that scene it's so you comes can read up, it. Yeah, it's so you can the read only it. Yeah. purpose is so you can read it. Um, also, that doesn't work. His emergency music doesn't work. It backfires. It does not. Yeah. No, it does. It, it backfires. But I do love the the level of organization and commitment that goes into prep, despite the fact. And I also love his bit. He does a bit. He, yes. he first plays YMCA. Yes. <laughs> he says. I'm kidding. I just wanted to see what you do. <laughs> no, no, we got good stuff. We got real good stuff here. But okay, so what is what you know? I guess in Melvin Carroll is someone that I guess I don't really buy Melvin and Carroll, so that where I can't, I can't really answer what does Carroll get from Melvin? What does Melvin get from Carroll? I guess Melvin gets some reprieve from his d- disease and his illness, I guess, by like caring about another person. Melvin is allowed to expand. I mean, Melvin gets the same thing from I think both Simon and Carroll. That's the problem. The, I, I agree. the problem I agree. with the romantic yeah. element is. It's not just Carol. You don't need it because he's getting it from someone. Correct. Well, he's getting exactly. it. Well, yeah. he's getting it from both. He can get it from both, but he doesn't have to be overly romantic with Carol. It's just these two people are allowing him to expand as a human being, develop properly as a human being. Um, and yeah, the, the going the other way, I, yeah, it's really hard. Carol, like he's done something good for Carol, so she's she's seeing something in him that she wouldn't otherwise have seen having to put up with him every day at the cafe. Well, she even says, she kind of like mirrors Simon's line about you look at someone long enough, you see their humanity. She says something in her letter about how like, you know, I never even looked this, this customer in my cafe. I never really truly looked at you. I didn't see the kind, generous human being in front of me, blah, 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 blah. blah. And like, yeah, she's just kind of saying that because he did something really nice for her and she doesn't know how to otherwise express herself. But like, it is a nice, like, call back to to simon's humanity line and like these people these people kind of cross through your life every day like the waitress that waits on you the customer that sits at your table the neighbor that you don't like like it it, it, i guess it is a good new york movie in that sense of like the people that you cross paths with that you never really take a look at or get to know and then suddenly they could change your life if you do get to know them i guess right i don't don't really you know 
Anything else on as good as it gets? I think I think that really is as good as it gets there, Josh. Okay. TJ, final thoughts? Nothing? I, no, I don't have anything else. Okay. I like this movie. I, I, I still am not sure I understand how it made $300 million <laughs> and was nominated for seven Oscars or whatever it was nominated for. Um, yeah, I guess we should talk about the Oscars real quick I, before we wrap up. Uh, it's got seven da, 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 nominations da, 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 of those two wins. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor, which it won. Best Actress, which it won. Best Supporting Actor for Ray Kinnear. Best uh, Adaptive Screenplay. Oh, I'm sorry, Best Original Screenplay for Mark Andrus and James L. Brooks. Best Film Editing, Richard Marks. Best Music for Original Music or Comedy Score by Hans Zimmer. I actually really like the music in this. Yeah, this, is the, uh, this, is the this is the penultimate. I think it's the second last year that we've got two separate score categories at the Oscars. Um, because Titanic wins check. the drama score. And this is nominated and loses to, I think, the Full Monty, which we'll get to. This is, I think, the penultimate year where the score category is split into dramatic score and musical comedy score why did they ever do that in the first place they're not the golden globes i think what do they do i i think they probably did it was probably born out of an era when there were more musicals i guess coming out of the studios perhaps um and you, yeah in the 60s and, and you had this is 1997 we're talking about it's the henry mancini <laughs> the sound of music came out 30 years ago right? the, the the henry mancini elmer bernstein they're more likely to have done comedy big epic comedy scores um, rather than dramatic scores, maybe. Um, I don't know. Um, Richard Marks, though, he's the one I was mentioning earlier editing. The guy co-edited Godfather Part Two and Apocalypse Now. And I'm I'm not sure I'm seeing the editing in this film quite to that level. Um, it is a little weird that this gets as many nominations as it does. I, I So you said it was edited quickly. That kind of surprised me because from what I hear, Jim Brooks, his style is kind of just to shoot a lot and maybe find the movie in the edit. And sometimes that works out and you get broadcast news or as good as it gets. Sometimes it doesn't work out and you get How Do You Know or whatever that last movie he made was. <laughs> um, and also from what I hear, the romance aspect was kind of found in the edit more so than in the script or on set. I don't know if that's now, true. That that's really, I heard. That really su- would surprise me. Um, that would really. I don't know. I mean, it does feel really tacked on though, as we said. Like that is just kind of the final 20 minutes. Not that, not that it's not. I mean, it's there, you know, again, in the compliment scene and the trip to Baltimore, but, like, it's mostly, you know, it mostly feels tacked on to me. And the movie could have ended after they go from Baltimore. Notably not nominated for cinematography. TJ, you hate the cinematography in this. Is that right? It, it looks like a TV movie, I think. It really looks like a TV movie. Yes. And part of that's the sound stage, sound, sound stageness of it all. But mm-hmm. it, it feels a lot like a sitcom. The way it's shot, and I think the writing and the characterizations, it feels a lot like a 90s sitcom. I mean, I don't I don't disagree, but I also don't mind, I guess. <laughs> Cinematographer, by the way, who is a John Bailey. Um, we texted about this, but he is uh, the not the current, but the previous president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. John, John Bailey credits as the cinematographer. American Gigolo, Ordinary People, Cat People. Uh, so he's worked with Paul Schrader. Yep. He's worked with uh, Robert Redford. Uh, uh, Bob Redford. He shot some Lawrence Kasdan movies. He shot The Big Chill. Which um, I believe his wife, uh, I can't remember his wife's name. John Bailey's wife is an editor. And I believe she worked on Kasdan and Schrader movies as well. Might be where they met. I his, don't know. His wife is Carol Littleton, who is your She did uh, E.T. She, I think that's what she's most oh. famous for. Uh, John Bailey also shot, let's see, Groundhog Day. Speaking of Harold Ramis. He shot a couple of Errol Morris movies. He shot he shot for the love of the game, the least Sam Raimi, Sam Raimi movie. <laughs> so I don't know. Like I'm looking at these movies. He shot the 
second version of the producers, which is not a good movie. He he's he's got a lot of credits. I mean, he's he works, but none of these jump out at me. He's like, oh man, that was a really well shot movie. That just seems like oh, it's like that was a competently shot. Movie. He's a journeyman um, cinematographer. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, to your uh, Josh, I want to uh, make a correction. I was wrong. This was actually uh, looks like principal photography commenced in September of ninety six. So this was before the Oscar. Yeah. So yeah, this is before Cuba actually wins the Oscar. By the way. Um, and again, I don't think given given the roles he took after his Oscar win, I don't think he would have taken like where he's I don't know fifth build. I don't think he would have taken that role. Although I don't know, again, Oscar it's all about Jack. Jack's the star. It's a Jack Nicholson movie. Well, he's in three scenes. Yes, yeah. he's in four. But scenes. he's they're all with they're all for the most except for the hospital scene. They're almost all with Jack. Yeah. So. Seven Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. It wins Actor and Actress. I kind of already said at the top that this is like a surprising movie for me to have won Best Actor and Best Actress. And even a surprising movie to have been nominated for Best Picture. TJ, do you agree? Yes, I do. Um, Both at the time and given, we'll get to this later, but given the things that other films that came out in 97. But I also don't think this would be nominated if it were made today. If I mean, this would be a TV show today. I mean, we say that a lot, but, like, this is, like, maybe the most TV show movie that we've covered thus far. Like I said, it is kind of, like, two and a half movies smushed into one. It is, like, seven acts. Like, this could be an eight-episode show extremely easily, where the trip to Baltimore is an episode, the the Do- Simon's attack is an episode, the Doctor's an episode, etc. Um, this is just a really curious Best Picture nominee for me. I don't dislike, I mean, I like the movie a lot, but, like, not what I think of when I think of Oscar movies by any means. Ken, what do you think? Um, I actually don't mind it being there. If I if I had my choice, it wouldn't have been the five. It wouldn't have been one of the five nominees for Best Picture. I probably wouldn't have nominated it myself that year. Um, it does. I think looking back on it, it seems a little odd. Yeah, this doesn't seem like a normal movie. Your normal Best Picture nominee for sure. Um, and I think a lot of that goes to the fact that James L. Brooks. I mean, his last. In the 80s, he had Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News. This movie is a little more like Broadcast News in the sense that it's an unorthodox romantic comedy, I guess. And maybe it's just the James L. Brooks and Jack Nicholson of it all. And the fact that Helen Hunt is like, it, it may have just gotten swept up with who's involved in the movie. We've talked about that a few times already um, when discussing Best Picture nominees. And it feels like that. Uh, I agree. It's just, po- it's just very popular with people at the time. Well, we, we haven't mentioned James L. Brooks at all in this conversation. It's kind of late to bring it up now, but notably, he didn't make a ton. Of, I mean, he made TV shows that were extremely successful, and his kids, kids, kids will never have to work because of The Simpsons. Yes. Um, but uh, three of his first four movies were nominated for Best Picture, one of which won. Uh, three being Terms of Endearment, which won Broadcast News, and then this. Right. Then he kind of falls off a bit. He makes Spanglish and, you know, How Do You Know and... His next movies don't work out so well, but it is interesting. I guess to your point, Jim Brooks had already made some movies that got a lot of Academy love. So like maybe this one was kind of like kind of looked at a little more fondly than it maybe would have been had it not been made by James L. Brooks, possibly. Yeah, I think I think it's partially the people had involved. It not star Jack Nicholson. What, you know, once we get we'll get a, we'll get to it when we are on the key the the recap episode. There are other titles that it's a little surprising the Academy didn't go for more. Um, but I, I, I have to think that it's the people involved here that really sell this to the voters. That's all I really got. I think that's like, you know, it's a movie that I kind of held at arm's length for a long time because it was a big Oscar player. 
and like I was confused as to how or why it was a big Oscar player and why it made a lot of money. But now I kind of just like don't care about that as much anymore, and I kind of like watch the movie on its own terms. And like I, I, it's really grown on me. I'm, I'm I'm charmed by it. I like it in a pretty uncomplicated way. It's really imperfect. It's too shaggy. It's 20 minutes too long. It looks like a TV movie. It's sporadically structured, but like I kind of don't care. Like it, the the charm works on me. Jack Nicholson works on me. Helen Hunt works on me. Greg Kinnear works on me. It's like I like it. I like it in an uncomplicated way. It's a very solid, you know, three and a half out of five, maybe even four out of five on a good day kind of thing. That like I don't know. I like this. This is good. TJ, uh, final thoughts? Yeah, I'm not as enthusiastic. It's kind of I've soured on it over time. It's, it's something that's like easy to watch and watch parts of because, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. it's kind of charming. But also because it's incredibly unchallenging and it is. it's very shallow. Um, so I, I don't. Shallow, yeah. I that's not a recipe for <laughs> success for me for movies that I like. Um, so. uh, maybe it's not a serious film person movie. Honestly, this is not a movie for serious film people. It's a movie for casual film people, which is fine. That's that's totally fine. Yeah, it, it. But maybe not for this podcast. I was gonna <laughs> say, I think it, I think it works for what it's trying to do. It's just in retrospect a little surprising that it's in conversation with these other movies. And to TJ's point, it's maybe not trying to do much, right? You know, or maybe it is, but it's not like OCD thing. I think bumps me. It bumps TJ more. It's bumping me. But like, I don't know. It's it's like both. It's being flippant, but also I don't know. But it gives us it gives us uh, Jack Nicholson's third appearance. In a film on, on this podcast Third so far. appearance in the podcast, that's right. I like this a lot more than Prizzy's Honor. I'll say that much. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um, all right. I think that does it for us. Uh, boilerplate ending stuff. You can follow us on Twitter at SeriousFilmPPL, I think. You can follow us on TikTok, Serious Film People Podcast. People like our TikToks. Yeah. So follow us there. Check it out. What people like about them, I guess. Uh, you can email us, SeriousFilmPeople at gmail.com. You can subscribe to our Patreon if you're feeling generous and like what we do here, patreon.com slash seriousfilmpeople. And I guess, let's see, this episode will come out in July uh, 2023. It's currently April, just for people listening. <laughs> um, I think by July, we'll definitely have like some bonus episodes in the Patreon for movies that aren't nominated for Best Picture. Uh, you're on air saying that now, so now we really have to do it or this will look bad in July. Yeah, I know. We're going to do it, though, is a thing. I don't, I don't care. I'm I'm, put, I'm pushing my chips forward. Um, I mean, you know, we, we've kind of talked uh, amongst ourselves, like, ideas for Patreon episodes. And, like, probably by July we'll have one or two out, probably. But um, I kind of want to do an episode on Armageddon because it's been previously mentioned on the podcast and TJ loves it. So maybe that'll be our July Patreon episode. I don't really know. We'll find out. You'll know by the time you're listening to this. <laughs> um, but uh, next week, alphabetically... The Full Monty is next week, which will be my first viewing. That's the only movie in this batch from 1997 that I haven't seen previously. So I'll be coming in fresh. Fresh take on The Full Monty. Join us then, won't you? Good night, sweetheart. Sell crazy someplace else. We're all stocked up here.